know if uh, the second half of the table will even hear me today, so I, I, don't, I, can't, I can't really talk much louder uh, than I am. But uh, hopefully you can get it on SoundCloud later. <laughs> you, don't, you don't hear me today. Uh, I understand that there's a, kind of, there's a mini winter session coming, right? When is that? That's pretty soon. So because of that, because they, they want everyone to start a new topic, so when they come, we're going to start medical ethics. So we are on the verge of finishing this, but I'm still going to stretch this out a little bit more to uh, have a new topic when the uh, new, people, new people come. So uh, I know you may think that this is taking forever, but you know, it, it is a complicated, interesting topic. So I am going into it in some, some detail, but part of it is the ulterior motive of not wanting to start something new until the new group uh, comes. So basically what we had already done is we had discussed the basin process and uh, the Machlokas, the Rambam and Rabbeinu Tam and the fact that once Beistin gives a woman a psak, there is a difference between Eretz Yisrael and Chutz La'aretz in terms of how those things are enforced. Okay, now what we began touching upon at the very end of last class are the other ways that an aguna can be protected which do not require her to go to a basting. One is the invalidation of the marriage ceremony itself by establishing that it was not a halachic marriage. If something is not a halachic marriage, you don't need a Jewish get to terminate it. Uh, some examples of non-halachic marriages are obviously a Jew and a non-Jew non-halachic marriage, you don't need a get. A second example, the most common example, is the witnesses are not halachically observance. They're not Shomer Shabbos. In rare cases, by accident, you used your cousin or whatever it is, there may be a relative problem, which is also a way of invalidating. A third basis of invalidation might even be something relatively subtle, such as a double ring ceremony, or the chatan did not fully pay for the wedding ring. So as a result, it's not completely his. These are various ways that we can sometimes find invalidation of the halachic ceremony, or there was no halachic ceremony. A civil marriage or the like generally does not need a, a get. So that's a second avenue. There's the basin process. Another avenue is invalidation of the marriage, even after many years even after many years. Uh, let me point out that when you invalidate a marriage, that means there never was such a marriage. So therefore, the woman could marry a Kohen unless she had relations with a non-Jew. If a woman gets a get, she cannot marry a Kohen. But if a woman is not a virgin, but it's through relations with a Jew, she actually is allowed to marry a Kohen. Right? So invalidation might be a little better for her than uh, getting a get. But as I say, invalidation would only apply if there's something wrong in the halachic ceremony. Did you want to say something? Yeah, I have a question. Yeah. But it seems like it would just be easier for everybody if we don't encourage people to get halachic marriages. Ah, okay. But so, yeah, yes. Yeah. So the question is, why, why don't we try to solve this whole problem like, by, not, by encouraging people not to have halachic marriages? Yeah, there actually was a proposal in the 19th century uh, of the Orthodox rabbinate in Morocco, because
because there were cases of women who could not get a get from their husbands, that we ought to stop doing marriages and everything ought to be uh, pilegish, that means a concubine or a mistress. Well, like, people who definitely will get a get, they should get a loving marriage, and people who won't necessarily, you don't care to, what, they shouldn't bother getting a loving marriage. Well, first of all, you keep in mind that according to uh, the Rambam and the Shulchan Aruch, it is prohibited for a single couple to live without marriage. So, yeah, but, so it is, it but is then a sin. Rambam's there is way worse. No, you're right, you're right, you're right. So that's the question. So the question is, if you have X percentage of people who, are, who may create a real serious sin, do you then go, let's have 100% of the people do a less serious sin, so we shouldn't have 10% of the people do a more serious sin. And that's kind of your, your cal- yeah. calculus. So many posts can say that we don't want to encourage more people to commit sin uh, who would not do so in order to stop a small minority. Because it is a small minority. So, but and what you're saying makes some sense. As I say, there were Rabbanim who actually suggested what you suggested. But uh, you know, the consensus was not to go that way. Yeah? Isn't it the case that if a woman got engaged for the ring, like a Uh, well, are you assuming she would need a get or not need a get? I'm assuming that, I, I, my understanding, we had a conversation about this in class earlier. Yeah. My understanding was that if he gives her a ring and says, Hari, I think we should not in a Boba ceremony, just before that, then if they choose to bring off that engagement, she will need to receive a get, and then she's not able to marry a poet. You know, let me, I mean, that, that is a possibility, indeed. But there would have to have been two witnesses who saw it. Meaning, right. yeah. So, so if, they, if they intentionally do a halakha engagement ceremony. Well, then it wouldn't, then it would not be an engagement. It would actually be a marriage ceremony. <laughs> right, that's what's called kiddushin in the Gemara. Yes, right? yes, yes, yes. Okay, but most, but, 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 but it's important to know that although you are 100% correct, theoretically that could turn into kiddushin. 100%. But most of the time it does not because, number one, the chassan does not use those words. Hareyak mekudetchazi, that's not how you... No, we, we were asking specifically about a case that came up in the Gemara where, where they do intentionally create kedushin, but they haven't done nisuin, and then if she were one out of that engagement, she would need that. I said yes. she would need again. Yes, you're 100%, you're 100% correct, but halakha would not call it an engagement. Halakha would call it a marriage that didn't have nisuin. Yeah, yeah, 100% correct. But but in most cases of an engagement, well, that's why I, I, I believe, doesn't Chabad have a minute you don't give engagement rings? Does anyone know that? Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's exactly the reason. So it shouldn't create a marriage complication. But in most of the cases, it doesn't, because most of the cases, you don't use that language, there aren't witnesses there, you know, etc. But yeah, there are those who say, let's not do engagement rings, precisely because it creates that particular problem. Now, so one type of invalidation is something's wrong with the ceremony. The other type of invalidation, this is exactly where we left off, is what would be called in secular terms an annulment. This refers to where the marriage, even if it was 100% kosher, two witnesses, a rabbi, everything was 100% kosher, but there was fraud or non-disclosure of something that was very, very important. And this could either be the kala didn't tell the chassan, or the chassan didn't tell the kala. It could be either way. So I'll give some examples. Uh, one example that Moshe Feinstein has, we mentioned last week, 
was a man marries a woman and then she discovers after the marriage that he was gay. Rabbi Feinstein says she does not need a get under those circumstances because no woman would ever agree to get married to a man that uh, was homosexual. Uh, another example could even be smaller. Even something as small as, maybe it's not such a big deal, but it's considered a big deal, a misrepresentation of his financial status. He misrepresented, no, he said he had a good job, and he didn't, he lied. She could get out of it without a get. Uh, he said he was a Kohen, even these things might seem minor, and he's not a Kohen. Right, that's called fraud, that's called what deception. If, what if he wasn't aware of Okay, so the truth of the matter is fraud might not be the correct word because it doesn't really depend on him intentionally lying. It just means that she was misled even if there was no intention to do so. So what if he found that he was gay after they were married? So that's a little tricky. It it really depends on whether, now this is also tricky, did he become gay? Obviously it was latent. Or did he do it before? Meaning... Things that happen later, again, this is very important, uh, are not grounds for annulments. Annulments have to be what are called pre-existing, pre-existing infirmities. Whether he was aware of them. Yes. Now, abuse is a very good example. If a woman marries a man and then discovers he was a wife abuser from a prior marriage or a pedophile or, or the like, that is grounds for annulment. If, on the other hand, he did not exhibit such behavior until after he was married, then she could go to Bayston and demand to get, and she would probably win under the Bayston process, but that's not grounds for annulment. Now, you understand the concept. Annulment has to be a pre-existing defect, whether he knew about it or not. So that's that's a controversial issue, but but generally speaking, uh, obviously you could say anybody who does anything later is a product of some pre-existing mental condition, but the mental condition has to have an external manifestation. That's very key. There had to have been a pre-existing external manifestation. The guy has a prison record, etc. These are grounds of annulment. Uh, and the again, if, if a woman gets an annulment, again, the technical term for annulment here is called mekach ta'us. Mekach ta'us means a mistaken transaction. And it's not unique to marriage. This, uh, this could apply to, yeah, mem, kuf, right, huh? ches, that's the first word. Second word is tes, ayin, vav, saf. Thank you. So if Mekach ta'os just means a mistaken transaction. This is not a unique principle to marriage. This applies if you buy a car, a house, a computer, right? You buy a car and you discover that the transmission is falling apart you could say, I want my money back. I want to cancel the transaction. 
So essentially, we're simply applying, I know it's maybe a little offensive at some level, but essentially we are applying the same rules to marriage that we apply to any transaction. Whichever side was deceived about something important and significant is able to cancel the transaction. Of course, that means, of course, the wedding ring has to be given back, etc. you know, all of that stuff, uh, can cancel the transaction without the need for a divorce ceremony. In fact, the word mekach, mekach actually just means a business transaction. And we're simply applying the rules of business even to something as holy as marriage. So annulment can be very, very useful, but annulment has its limits. You can't simply say, like a person might say, oh, if I would have known how difficult this my husband is, I never would have met. You know, those are, those are kind of general dissatisfactions. You know, he's difficult, uh, whatever, whatever that means exactly. Or if I would have known how lousy marriage is, <laughs> I would never want to get married. Uh, that's not enough, that's not enough either. Hopefully, you know, no one will ever have that type of, type of attitude. It has to be something very specific, and it has to be something kind of unusual. Now, I think I had mentioned to you uh, a case of Aguna that I was actually involved in, a woman who uh, couldn't get a get from her husband, and uh, face, uh, ORA, the Organization for Resolution of Agunas, had all sorts of rallies. You know, he was working for a congressman and they were rallying in front of the U.S. Capitol day after day after day after day. And this guy uh, was a little bit on the autistic spectrum. He was, you know, he gets, gets stubborn, stubborn, stubborn. Once he has a certain idea in his head, he could not be, in fact, I warned, I warned over that demonstrations would not work. I mean, I knew the, the person. So all of a sudden, I read one day, all of a sudden, uh, Tamar, which is his wife, again, this is a very public case, uh, Tamar is free. And I was wondering, why is Tamar free? Uh, I, know, I, I know for sure he wouldn't give a get. So it turned out that she got a psak that because of his mental condition, if she would have known about his psychiatric condition before marriage, she never would have married him. So she actually got an annulment. This is halakhically very controversial because the truth of the matter is she knew. Uh, okay, in other words, it's a very serious question what she knew, what she didn't know. But uh, this is an example of an annulment uh, be, being used. Uh, so uh, annulment is available, but it's a relatively rare remedy. And we always try to get a get because that'll cover our bases in case the grounds for annulment is no good. Yeah. What about if it's something concerning the family? So if you marry a nice guy, he is a nice guy, and then you find out that his father, um, you know, is Ted Bundy. Uh, nobody ever told you that. Like, is why didn't you hear what is is? I don't, this, this is a serial killer. Like, oh, oh, I'm not okay. saying like, oh, I don't like my mother-in-law, okay. but like, there's there's something very serious wrong yeah. with the family, but it's not anything to do with your husband. Yeah, yeah, that's a that's a, that's a very that's a very very excellent question. Uh, generally speaking. That is not grounds for annulment unless there is reason to fear that some negative aspect of the family uh, can affect the way your husband might behave. So, for example, a genetic predisposition to be a serial murderer. Uh, meaning to say, uh, you cannot get an annulment based on something unpleasant in the family history that you discovered, unless, unless, there was a deliberate cover-up, meaning, meaning there you make a difference. If the husband lied to you, then that might be annulment, but if it was simply it didn't come up and you found out later, 
uh, that would not be grounds for annulment. Now, let me just mention, there is an exception to the annulment rule that is so huge, it is a Mack truck exception. It, it makes annulment almost a very, 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 impo- almost an impossible remedy for a woman. And that is the following. Once she becomes aware of the problem, if she continues to cohabit, meaning have intercourse with her husband, after she is aware of what? Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yes, that's correct. So under those circumstances, that is considered a mechila. Mechila. Yeah, yeah. I will, I will get to it. Uh, if she has cohabitation with the husband after she becomes aware of the problem, as opposed to walking out, under those circumstances, she is deemed to be mochelet. Mochelet is wave, forgive. She is deemed to have forgiven the problem. And if she then wants to get out, she has to follow the get process. She cannot use the annulment process. Now, this is a problem that a rabbi faces on a very practical issue. Let's say, for example, uh, a woman comes to the rabbi and the woman says, I just discovered that my husband is bipolar and the like. Uh, What should I do? Now, here is the thing. It is often the instinct of rabbis, unless he's mamish and abuser, that we try to encourage reconciliation and shalom bias, that means peace in the home, and see what could be worked out. But you understand that that puts her at tremendous risk in the following way. If she tries shalom bias and it doesn't work out, she might be painting herself into a corner where she won't be able to give a get if he's stubborn and malicious, where she could have got an annulment, and in the attempt of reconciliation and shalom bayit, she's kind of out of the annulment game. Now, if the guy's going to give a get, that's not a problem, he'll give a get, you know, even though she can't marry a Cohen, but she'll get a get. But if there's any risk that when push comes to shove, he might not, not give a get, it is actually very, very risky to attempt shalom bayit in these types of situations because if she continues to live with him, she may forfeit her right to annulment based on the mechila. Now, the phrase that was used was uh, when Esther Hamalka was told by Mordechai, go to Akashverosh and plead for the Jews. And Esther didn't know how, what would come out. He would have intercourse with her or, or worse. So she uses the phrase... Kasher avadati avadati. As I have been destroyed, as I have lost my parents, I might be lost even from you. Because if the woman voluntarily has relations with Achashverosh, she cannot go back to Mordechai, uh, meaning she's in a permanent state of loss. And I'm suggesting that uh, this problem of continuing, and it's not just the rabbi's thing, I mean, stop. Very often, if a woman discovers a problem, on her own, she's going to try to see if it can be worked out. But the problem is, in trying to see if it's worked out, that may take away the annulment remedy. She could still ask for a get. If he gives a get, that's fine. But 
if he's a type of person who may not give again, that could create a tremendous aguna problem. So any woman that has a case, an argument for annulment, should really discuss this with the rabbi before she has any further relation uh, with a, a man uh, before, uh, before going ahead and having relations because of this particular issue. Yeah? So, but what if a woman, like, figures that out and then she's like, okay, to herself, she's like, I'm going to work on it, realizes, like, the situation, it's not going to happen, and then goes to a rabbi and gets the annulment of, like, the, the whatever. But she did have those relations with him, but she was unaware of, like, what she was Oh, no, she, she didn't know the halachic principle. Yeah. Okay, that, that, that might work. That actually might work. If she was not aware of this halacha, then it might be that even after cohabitation, she could still claim the, the annulment. That, that would be a bit of a question, but that is possible. Yeah? So what if the woman found out one of these things about her husband was that he was having annulment? Yeah. But she continued to cohabit. Yeah. And, uh, Okay, so these these are you know these are very good questions, and and this would have to be taken up by a, by a rabbi or by a posek. And as the argument goes, that if cohabitation takes away annulment because her voluntary decision to stay uh, means that she's forgiving or waiving the problem, so you're suggesting in cases where she doesn't have a reasonable choice to go anywhere else at that particular time. Perhaps we would not construe, I'm just repeating your, your point, perhaps we would not interpret it as a waving of it because you simply didn't have, uh, didn't have an option at the time. That, that might, again, that might be. All I'm saying is that uh, it is thin ice. It is dangerous territory, meaning to say these raise very serious, serious halachic uh, questions. And uh, the earlier the woman could consult with a, with a rabbi that's very knowledgeable in this, the better because it creates a big situation. Now again, if the man will give a get, it, it doesn't have to be a serious thing, but all I'm saying is that often, people with these serious emotional problems tend to be the people who also withhold gets. So as a result, uh, when there's a serious emotional or mental problem involved, there is always the potential for aguna, so a woman should try to preserve the annulment option when that is a possibility. Yeah? What happens if, um Okay, so, so again, so again I, want to, I want to repeat that annulment is for pre-existing problems, okay? Now, if a man loses a job during marriage, you know, that's unfortunate, and uh, if he deliberately is messing up when he didn't have to do so, she might ask for a get on that grounds. But annulment you can't have. Annulment has to be a problem at the time of the marriage itself. Yeah, yeah. So if she finds out that he has a mental yeah. But she finds out about it and they're still cohabiting, so those grounds for annulment are dismissed. Yeah. If she finds out about something else that was pre-existing, she 
yes, 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 indeed, indeed. Uh, the cohabitation only affects the defects of which she was aware when she cohabited. It does not preclude annulment for something she was not aware of, even after the cohabitation. Yeah. So that the physical um, manifestation of that problem has to be there? Yes. So, so maybe she finds a criminal record or she hears that he was abusing one of the children and she never knew, God forbid, yeah. something like yeah. that? Yeah, that, that's correct, that's correct. Now, now, there is, let me just mention one thing that you need to know. There is, or there was, I'm not even sure if it's still around, there was a bait, one bait-in in the world that was basically granting annulments to everybody on the grounds that any bad behavior that the husband manifests during marriage must have been a tendency that he had beforehand. In other words, if he became an abuser after marriage, they would give her an annulment because he must have had that in his personality. Which means basically almost every situation of any difficulty, a woman gets an annulment. In fact, even the fact, this is really crazy, if the man didn't give a get, that shows he has unreasonable stubbornness, which predated the marriage. Now, this is only one basin in the world. Every other basin totally rejects that because they basically say that there has to have been a manifestation of the negative behavior before marriage, not just some internal psychological propensity that didn't come out until later. Now, you're not going to say, oh, if he abused somebody now, he must have been an abuser but, before. But is the, often these issues only come out once someone's married. Right. Yeah, I understand, but well, well, you know, uh, not, not always. Especially I mean, like abuse. Well, abuse a lot of you know, but a lot of people uh, abuse uh, you know girlfriends. You know, that people yeah, abuse. But say, say that yeah. they haven't been in a relationship before. Okay. A lot of no, there's there was no occasion for him to uh, yeah. exhibit like abusive abuse behavior. Okay, but even so, even so, I mean, that's an unfortunate thing. Uh, and again, a woman could certainly ask a basin for a get, but it would not be grounds for, for a annulment. Uh, yeah? Um, if a woman herself wants to get an annulment, but she, like, she didn't have anything with her husband, but can she herself like, oh, I didn't tell him this, but I really meant it? <laughs> so so this, is the, this is the interesting thing. It all depends on the husband's reaction, meaning to say, if she deceived him, but he's happy with it anyway. <laughs> then she cannot use her non-disclosure to get out of the marriage with him if he's happy. I mean, the example would be, let's say I sell you a car with defective transmission. But you like the car anyway. You like to fix cars, right? So I want to get it back. I can't say, oh, I cheated him, I cheated him or her. I want the car back. <laughs> the cheater can't use the cheating to, to get it back. So uh, she would not be able to use that. Yeah. Um. So you mentioned like various Baytons have uh, different approaches. How do you select which Baytons you go to? Yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a very, good, very good point. Uh, again, I, I don't want to suggest uh, the particular Bayton I mentioned is, is so out of line that it's considered to be a rogue Bayton. I, I, would, I, I wouldn't even recommend it at all. Uh, generally speaking, uh, well, I mean, it, I mean, it depends on the community, meaning to say, uh, with experience and with consultation with a rabbi that, that you trust, or Rebbitson that you trust, uh, you can discuss which but they din have greater sympathy for women, which understand the situation, particularly when it comes to abuse. 
there are different definitions of abuse. I think every basin will say if there is serious abuse, a woman can get a get or sometimes an annulment. But what is serious abuse is a bit more of a subjective type of test. For example, there may be a basin that say, well, serious abuse is only if you were hit with a lead pipe three times. Uh, and they say there's no such thing as emotional abuse. Others understand that abuse can take psychological forms. So you really have to talk to a rabbi about, about it because different but they didn't respond in different ways. Um, I feel a little uncomfortable saying this because I, I don't mean to say the halacha is subjective. There are basic halachic rules that every basin follows, but applying those rules to a given reality may depend on sensitivity and experience. So this is a little bit of an area where even two rabbis that have the same halachic knowledge and they use the same halachic rules. The rules don't change. But how do you apply them to a given situation may, may, may differ. But you can choose, like as a woman trying to get a divorce, you can choose which basis well, you Well, here's the problem. According to the halacha, if a woman, uh, who, according to the halacha, the basin must always be in the place where the defendant lives. So uh, if the defendant lives in Yerushalayim, the husband, like you're, you're suing the husband for a get, so you have to go to a basin in Yerushalayim, but you can choose which basin. That's true, but it has to be in the defendant's city. You can't say, oh, I like the New York uh, basin because they're uh, more liberal, or Tel Aviv, for example, and the like. But you can choose the uh, you can choose the basin in that in that way. Yeah. Couple questions. One is all of the annulment stuff is not gender specific, right? That's correct. So Absolutely, a man can a get man, an annulment as well. So if, if a man finds out that she is bipolar and then he sleeps with her for that, he continues to sleep with her for the next. Same pro- same problem. So he he also has waived the right. To that's correct. And yep. he's called them a mochel. She's a mochel. Mochel, that's right. Mochel is the, is the male term. That's right. Mochel, mochel, yeah. My second question is about health history. Yeah. So if um, they get married and this never has come up and he finds out sometime into it that her, you know, her grandmother, mother, and three aunts all had breast cancer and now she has breast cancer. Um, and, and so clearly, maybe even they got genetic testing done and they knew that this there was, it was happening through this gene, and she even had the testing done, and she knew she had this gene. Yep. And she withheld this information. Is that grounds? Well, I, I think any any husband that would do that is a pretty rotten, rotten person. It's certainly not not a nice thing to do. I agree. But but in terms of uh, basic halacha, yeah, he could he could say that he was deceived regarding the high risk that she had. Uh, infertility might be the same thing. If a, I mean, this is a little more understandable, if a woman had a hyster, if a woman had a hysterectomy and didn't uh, didn't tell her husband, uh, that would be grounds for annulment because uh, she knows ahead of time that she's not able to have children. In fact, that's actually a simpler case than the, than the breast cancer case, right? Those types of things. But yeah. if she didn't know that she had infertility issues until they were trying together, can they still ask for Well, let me put it this way. Um, that's a little tricky because it really depends. If it is uh, a particular pre-existing condition that can be identified, that might be grounds for annulment. If it's what's called unexplained infertility, meaning we just don't know what the issue is, that, that would not be correct. Oh, so it could be his problem. That's correct. That's correct. Uh, absolutely. But then, then, of course, she could have an annulment on that ground. Yeah? What if the, the spouse doesn't ask? 
Okay, so this is an interesting question. Uh, in fact, I should mention this as a second issue. There's one issue I mentioned was cohabitation once you become aware. The other issue is, what about types of things that you could have found out had you asked and you didn't bother? So now, let me give you an example from selling a car, because, because Mekach Ta'ot is actually based on commercial transactions. Let's imagine that you buy a car and you were offered the chance to do a test drive. And you said, I don't I'd have to do a test drive. And then as soon as you buy the car, you discover the brakes don't work, the transmission is no good. And you claim, I was deceived because I, I figured I had a car that works. So here you're in trouble because this was a type of problem that you could have found out about, meaning a type of problem that doesn't manifest until 100 miles. That's one thing. But a type of problem that you could have found out right away and you didn't bother, that's also called a mechila. You know, you didn't care. So that may be a very serious problem. If it's a type of thing where if you would have asked, you would have gotten correct information and you didn't bother to think about it, that might be, it might, it might be a problem. Yeah, indeed. The analogy again, because these laws are based on the same rules that you apply to cars and houses and everything else. Uh, if you buy a house and you discover it's termite infested, but you didn't bother to do a termite inspection beforehand, you cannot invalidate the sale because it has termites, right? Because these are defects you should have noticed. You should have noticed. Now, when it comes to something like gay, you know, uh, that's not something a person expects. I mean, if a man is dating a woman, uh, you know, you don't assume that he's gay. So that's why when you discover he's gay, that's grounds for, for annulment. But things that could be ascertained relatively easily, you do have to have to do that. So for something like a medical condition, yeah. if you don't ask, then it's not grounds for annulment? Uh, in some cases, it would not be. If it's something that's relatively common, in other words, it, it kind of depends. Meaning, uh, if it's a very, very rare condition that you wouldn't imagine anybody has, then you're not expected to think of it. But if it's the typical range of psychiatric problems that are unfortunately relatively common, bipolar, whatever it is, uh, severe anxieties, and, uh, obsessive compulsive, which are you know, relatively common in the general population, then you have a duty to try to check them out. And if you don't, you might have a problem with uh, using annulment as, as a grant. Yeah. Yes, yes, that's actually a very, very important issue in the dating process. It's not our topic directly, but uh, you know, people sometimes say that if, well, both in terms of the person dating and in, pers- in terms of the shadchan or the rabbi or the rebbitzin, uh, and that is, some people say, oh. I'm not allowed to mention that so-and-so has uh, severe psychiatric conditions because of Lashon Hara. I'm not allowed to say negative things about people. Uh, that is actually not true. Uh, there is a mitzvah to reveal n- necessary disclosures of detrimental information to prevent another person from being victimized or suffering. So that means both the rabbi and the rebbetzin and the shadchan and even the person themselves do have to disclose these serious conditions, but, 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 not right away. And the reason is 
uh, if you have to give this information before you, before you even meet somebody, then you're never going to meet anybody because nobody wants to go out with a problem. So you have the right, when I say you, I don't mean only women, I mean, I mean men have these problems, men have plenty of problems too. You have the right to let people see your good side and your positive side before you have to talk about your negative side. So that's why, it's a rule of thumb, different people will tell you different things, but that's why it's often suggested that you don't have to reveal any type of negative information, whether it's medical conditions or psychiatric conditions or medication that somebody's on, until after three or four dates where the person sees you, sees how you function, sees your personality, sees the good points, and then you have to be honest and tell them the negative points, but you don't have to front load the negatives because then you'll never get a chance, and that's not fair either. Even people with psychiatric problems, you know, can adjust, can, can live well, can be very, very fine people. And uh, they, you know, we certainly don't have a rule that they're not supposed to get married, uh, but you need to have full disclosure. It's very important to be honest. Uh, it's a big, big uh, problem in the Jewish world sometimes that there's a lot of dishonesty uh, in the dating process and the marriage process. Uh, even age. I mean, there, there are people that, that routinely lie about how old they are. Uh, they'll understate their age by more than five years. Now, you might say, what's the big deal? But, you know, but, you know it's, it's a lie. You know, and, you know we, we, we don't lie. And a marriage certainly should be based on uh, that you can trust each other and people are not lying. Yeah. So more the, the responsibility, more lies of the person who possesses Yes, as a matter of fact, yes, yes. Uh, you should not allow someone to be deceived. Now, this is subtle. This is actually a very subtle issue because let me give you an example where you might be allowed not to talk about things. Let's talk about, I think a delicate topic, let's talk about uh, sexual history, for example. In other words, there's a very big difference between telling a prospective shidduch that, you know, you're bipolar and telling a prospective shidduch that you're not, not a virgin. In other words, what is past is past. In other words, you don't, you don't have to talk about every single aspect of your past. You know, a person does tshuva, they're a different person. What is relevant is not so much the past. What is relevant is the impact of any condition on a future relationship. In other words, the issue is not, I got to talk about what I did yesterday. Rather, the issue is I have to reveal anything that may negatively affect the ongoing marriage we're going to have. So do you see the, do you see the difference there? So that's what's important. Uh, so basically, in fact, the, the reason why I have to tell someone that I, I'm an abuser, if I am, although I doubt that that will attract Shidukim, uh, is not because I was an abuser, that's not the reason why, but rather, if I was, there's a good chance I will be. Uh, so it's always future directed. It's not so much past directed. So things in the past that are not going to come back and haunt you can be forgotten. You don't have to bring those things up. Yeah. Um, what about the case of like body piercings or tattoos or something that like for most people, I would say it's like it doesn't necessarily affect anything to find out later that the person like on a covered part of their body has a piercing or a tattoo. Yeah. 
but for some people, especially in some Jewish communities, I'm sure that would be like, a, oh my God, how could you not say? Like, yeah, I, I, th- I think once again, subject to the rule that you don't have to talk about this right away, and it can it can wait till they see you. I, I think you should uh, you should disclose it. Uh, condition of the body that uh, a religious person might be be makbid on. Uh, makbid means uh, you know uh, negative towards. Uh, would be something that you, you disclose. Again, the more disclosure, the better, but only if it's an ongoing thing. If, for example, you had a tattoo that you had removed and there's no no sign, no. Right. you know, you don't have to bring, you don't even have to bring that up. But if you have like a massive tattoo on your stomach, it's like that's something you need, somebody wouldn't find out about you until you're yeah, married. Yeah, you, 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 need, you need to talk and about it. And technically, it doesn't really affect anything if they don't care. Well, so, so, so well, let me put it this way. So, so listen, so it's really a no-lose proposition. <laughs> if they don't care, then they don't care. If they care, then they, should, then they have to know about it. Right? So, so it, it doesn't really uh, it make sense that you have to talk about that particular issue. Uh, by the way, this gives rise to just a separate digression. Uh, I'm going to mention this. For some reason, I'm sure you heard this, every person in the world heard this halacha that's not a true halacha. Everybody knows this. I mean, people who don't know anything about Judaism, everybody knows if you have a tattoo, you can't be buried in a Jewish cemetery. Everybody has heard that, I bet you, and that's totally incorrect. It is totally incorrect. Uh, you're not allowed to get tattoos. That's, that's true. But, you know, a tattoo is not worse than violating Shabbos. <laughs> and people who violate Shabbos and kosher certainly are buried in a Jewish cemetery. A tattoo is the same thing. So I don't know why everybody knows this law. The law is not Emmett's. It's not true. Where does it come from? Does it come from that father's not like grandparents, whatever, saying that they're scared they're good Jewish? Yeah, it probably, it, probably was a, it probably was a scare tactic, is my guess. But, but, but it's so well known. I mean, right? Everybody here in the room heard that, right? Yeah, yeah. Everybody hears that. And it's much not true. Now, God forbid, I'm not encouraging you to get a tattoo. Don't, don't do that. Uh, you're not allowed to do that. Now, this gives rise to a secondary question. So it is forbidden to get tattoos. Okay. Let's say somebody got a tattoo. Are you halachically obligated to go through the process of removing it? You actually are not. Now, you may want to do so as a sign of you know, becoming a religious member of the community. It depends whether... It can be done without pain. You know that, that that's that's your individual decision. Uh, but according to halacha, the prohibition is to get it uh, once you have it. Uh, before there is no halachic obligation per se to get it removed. Again, I think a person ought to think about it uh, as part of their tshuva process. But it's not a halachic requirement. Yeah. So that's a good question. You, you try, if at all possible, not to directly lie, but you can obfuscate. Uh, you can kind of give uh, a, a misleading answer or an incomplete answer and the like. Right, Anochi, right, I am, and Asaph is your firstborn, right, right, things like that. Um, because a lot of people ask questions that really don't make a lot of sense. I mean, there are people who say, for example, well, I don't want to say it doesn't make sense, but it's overly strict. They say, uh, did your grandmother keep Tyrus HaMishpacha? Meaning to say they want to go back like uh, generations. They'll only marry someone that was religious for many, many generations. That's a little unfair. Yeah. So the rabbinic prohibition? To do what? To not get a 
no, it's a Torah prohibition. The, the Torah, the Torah prohibits getting tattoos. That's in Deuteronomy. Uh, it says it's called kasovas kaka. Kaka is the it means the uh, scra- you know scraping the skin and filling it with ink. Is there any kind of like part days explanation? Well, the why is it forbidden? Well, Maimonides gives the simplest explanation. Maimonides basically says that this was the uh, custom of idolaters and idolatrous rituals to, to stamp images of their idols on themselves. And this was part of the Torah's prohibition against emulating the ways of idolaters. Now, obviously, that explanation is a little weak because tattoos today usually are not that, although sometimes they might be. Others look at it as part of the general idea that our bodies are not our property and therefore we cannot uh, change or mutilate them because they're God's property. It's a form of uh, taking Hashem's property and trying to change it. In fact, that would even, that gets into the issue of plastic surgery where some people also have problems with elective, I don't mean burn victims or something, but elective plastic surgery. Some are against it for the same reason, same concept as tattooing because our body is not our property to do with it as we as we want. Um, by the way, some tattoos can be really, really a problem. You know, uh, there are tattoos which have God's name, Hashem's name in Hebrew. And I mean Yudke Vavke, Mamish, even the name of God we don't even pronounce. There are people who get those tattoos. Now there, there, you're not allowed to remove that tattoo because there's an issue of the Torah to erase God's name. Could you get like another tattoo in between the letters to break up the name? So interestingly enough, that might be considered a form of erasing, <laughs> even though you're not physically erasing. Right. So, and in fact, there's even a discussion: how can you take how can you take a shower or go to the bathroom with that type of tattoo? You're kind of you know bringing. All right. So, so going to the bathroom wouldn't be so much of a problem. You would cover basically. You know, God's name would be covered by your sleeve or something. But taking a shower, right, uh, it's exposed. So you actually have to kind of put a, a bandage or something uh, over the name so it doesn't get exposed, you know, when you're naked. So uh, if you're going to get a tattoo, don't get that one. Uh, <laughs> yeah. What if it was like Yud K, Bob K, and then like when they put... Just not, not yeah, yeah, yeah. So that... No, 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 no. So I'll tell you the... Can you get that room with the two... Okay, no, 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 no. The, the reason you cannot is because Yud K is God's name also. The Vav K you can remove. You can remove the Vav. You can remove one. Yeah, but that's not, that's a temporary. The tattoo kind of like this, whatever, and he like that, and was like, No, I understand that, but that's, uh, that, that's similar to, for example, on a computer screen, if you have Yud K, Vav K, you can shut off your computer, because the reason is that's not a permanent writing. Yeah, Yud K is, is a name of Hashem in and of itself, so you cannot. Uh, you can take out the second part. Yeah, you can take out the second part, not not the first part. Uh, so those those are issues. Um, I'll tell you a, a very very nice uh, story about uh, tattoos. Uh, there was a fellow. Uh, this is a, maybe it's a legend. I'm not sure, but it's a legend they say in my yeshiva, or Sameach, about a boy that had a big tattoo on his arm, and he became very religious, and the tattoo couldn't be removed. And he wanted to go to the mikvah, era of Rosh Hashanah. You know, people go to the mikvah. And he really, really was embarrassed because, you know, he tried to be a religious guy. He didn't want people to see his tattoo. So he was going to the mikvah with a towel over himself, and he was going to just remove it the last minute when he goes into the water. And what happened was uh, 
he slipped and the towel flew and his big tattoo got exposed and he had the sense, it was probably exaggerated, that everybody stopped. And everybody was looking like the movie, that slow action, ooh, you know, everyone is looking at him. And he feels so, so humiliated. Again, it probably was an exaggerated uh, reaction. And then there was another old man that had the concentration camp tattoo on his arm. And he went over to the boy and said, yeah, I have one of those too. But we can go to the mikveh and we have a new year and Hashem will, you know. Give us a year of life. And There's a real version yeah. of this story. Yeah. Published in a book. Yeah. Okay. Uh, well, uh, it's probably the same story. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I, I don't know if it's more real. <laughs> These things sometimes get made up anyway, but yeah, but that's, that's I don't the basic. It, it's published in a book supposedly of somebody sent in this story. It's a real story. Right? <laughs> okay. I don't know. Well, all right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, what, if, what does ban someone from getting married in a Jewish Oh, okay. So th- this is an interesting question. Uh, by and large, uh, the only thing uh, that bans a person is if he, he or she married a non-Jew. No, no, I'm talking, about, I'm talking about being banned in an Orthodox cemetery. I mean, Reform Conservative will, will take anybody. But um, intermarriage is one thing. And the second thing is, but this is more difficult, is suicide. Now, now let me point out that only applies to suicide, which was not from suffering or depression. And since the overwhelming, maybe 100% almost, of suicides come from depression and extreme suffering, so practically we do bury. But on the books, there is a rule that a suicide does not get buried in a regular what Jewish What would suicide come from? Huh? Sacrificing yourself to the gods? Yeah, yeah. Well, the Torah says uh, that God will, will seek out your blood if you spill your blood are treated as a murderer. So that's a rule of suicide. But as I say, uh, practically, since almost every case of suicide you can imagine comes from great, great depression or suffering, so practically we, we, we do bury them in a Jewish cemetery. Yeah? Can you expand a little on the, on the intermarriage? Or is it literally... Uh, well, it's pretty literal. Uh, if a man... Ma- a man marries a non-Jewish woman or a, or a Jewish woman marries a non-Jewish man, uh, that is treated as a betrayal to the Jewish nation. And uh, when they die, we will not... Uh, well, when I say we don't bury them in a Jewish cemetery, let me explain that a little bit. That doesn't mean they're totally excluded. It means they'll be, they'll, they'll be buried in a separate section. They will not be buried... Uh, it'll be a... You know, cemeteries are divided into sections. So there may be a section for intermarried Jews. They will not be buried with the regular uh, Jewish population. But I still, still consider someone who went through a non-Orthodox conversion to be a non-Jewish uh, Okay, so that's, that's a tricky question. I'll, I'll tell you why it's tricky. As a matter of strict halachic detail, that is an intermarriage because the, non, the non-Jewish conversion, uh, the non-Orthodox conversion was not valid. Yes, so it is an intermarriage. However, the person who engaged in that intermarriage did not intentionally turn his back on the Jewish people because he thought he was marrying a valid convert. So if the idea of not burying them in a Jewish cemetery is because they are betraying, they are rebelling against the Jewish people, it could very well be 
that if a person married someone that had any type of Jewish conversion, even if it was not halakhically valid, perhaps that punishment, so to speak, should not apply. Well, that was a so there, there would be grounds for leniency there. Is Jewish uh, Jewish burial is not discussed in detail in the Torah, but it is discussed in detail in the uh, Talmud and mainly in the Shulchan Aruch and later later books. So we do have a very detailed Jewish ritual. You know, every community has a society called the Chevra Kadisha. Chevra Kadisha means the Holy Assembly, who prepare bodies for Jewish burial. They wash the bodies. Uh, they dress the bodies in a white burial shroud. Men and women have slightly different garments. Uh, they even wash the hair. You know, they shampoo the hair and comb it, etc. This is preparing the body uh, in a very dignified and beautiful way. It's actually a great honor to be part of the burial society. In fact, the Alter Rebbe <laughs> became a member of the Chevrolet, I think, at the age of 13 or something. And that was like unheard of. You know, you never had like kids, adolescents doing Hebra Kadisha, but this is something he wanted to, uh, he wanted to do. So, uh, but, but most of that is not in the, even in the Talmud, most of that are in Hagen, the customs that developed later. By the way, many, many, even conservative and reformed Jews use the Hebra Kadisha or even have a Hebra Kadisha of their own because they find these customs very beautiful and very meaningful. Yeah? So, if you said that uh, if you're married to a non-Jew, like you get buried in a different section, or yeah. you can't be buried in the Jewish yeah. cemetery. But if in Judaism we don't identify marriage as being a necessary halakhic marriage, right. could you not say the same thing about a woman and a man that live together? Because they don't have a contract, but they still, under the same halakhic, not being married. No, I, I understand, I understand. But, but there is a difference, meaning a man and a woman live together, they're not married, so they're committing a sin, just like a Cohen marries a divorced woman, it's a sin, but a Cohen gets buried in a regular burial plot. But intermarriage is treated as kind of a betrayal. It's almost like an act of treason. It's a very different thing than simply not having a halakhic marriage. So I uh, we, don't recognize it, we don't recognize civil marriages as marriage. That's correct. We don't recognize it as a marriage, but, but the parties recognize it as a marriage, meaning the parties made a decision. Now, I know this sounds harsh, and... Uh, what, if, what if the yeah. marriage came as a... You were saying if, let's say, someone went through any sort of Jewish conversion... Yes. And so then the other spouse thought that they were marrying a Jew. Right, right. So it wasn't on purpose. So what yeah. if, would a lack of education also serve as, like, it might, it might, it might, It might be. It might be. That's what I was going to say. I was going to say that you have to understand that intermarriage in Europe you know, in the uh, 100 years ago, before that, was so rare that anyone who intermarried was really declaring, I don't want to be a Jew. Today, unfortunately, precisely because intermarriage is so common, it doesn't have the same message anymore. Uh, you know, 100 years ago, if you intermarried, you're saying, I don't care about Judaism at all. That's not true today. You know, intermarriage in America is uh, one out of two marriages. And in some small towns, it is seven out of ten. Can you believe it? Seven out of ten marriages with a Jew are to another Jew, uh, to, uh, to a non-Jew. So some have said that the same idea, that you can't look at it as a rebellion, so perhaps we could be a little more lenient today. 
It's a possibility. I'll give you one example where people are lenient. Uh, I'll give you a, an analogy. The minog in Europe was 100 years ago, and some people do it even today. If you had, well, remember, fiddle on the roof. If, if somebody intermarries, the parents treated the child who intermarried as if they were dead, and they would sit shiva. They would sit seven days of mourning for the child, and that child was dead. That is how uh, intermarriage was treated. Today, even though some people still do that, but today, the great uh, rabbis have ruled that even after an intermarriage, as bad as an intermarriage is, it's still important for the parents to keep a relationship with their child, to show the child love, to welcome them in the home, because that is the only possible way you could possibly keep them to have some connection to Judaism. So there clearly has been a change there. Whether that would apply to the Jewish cemetery is an interesting question. There is a possibility that it would, but there's clearly been a change. So for example, gee, this opens up a whole Pandora's box, really. So that's not our topic for today, but uh, if my, I don't want to say my guy, if a child intermarries, should the parents go to the wedding? Now, from a strict halachic standpoint, the parents absolutely should not go to the wedding because they're blessing this intermarriage. On the other hand, they have to ask themselves, what's going to happen with my relationship to my child if I don't go to the wedding? These are agonizing, hard, difficult questions. So as a guest, you should not go to the wedding if you're just a guest. But if you're a parent, it's a bit of a different, bit of a different cheshman. Uh, do you invite an intermarried couple, let's say your children, for Shabbos? Well, one side is a guy, one side is a Jew. But if the Jew is not going to go without the guy, <laughs> your son is not going to come without his wife, then maybe it's worthwhile to keep the Jew connected to Shabbos, and maybe the non-Jew will get interested, and maybe, just maybe, no promises, the non-Jew might eventually want to convert to Judaism. It's happened. It has happened. Right, so the issue of intermarriage is a very, very delicate issue. On one hand, we're absolutely against it. It is a great, great sin. On the other hand, when you're presented with a fait accompli, that it was already done, you have to try to salvage whatever you can from something that was not a good good arrangement. Try to do as much mitzvot as you can do. Yeah. So going back to the burial, is it only intermarriage and suicide, or is murder also on that list? This is an interesting anomaly. You know, it says that suicide, a person who commits suicide, does not have a share of the world to come if, if they did it without pain or depression. And yet, it doesn't say the same about murder, meaning it's hard to understand. I could understand that suicide is murder, I understand that, but I don't understand why would suicide be worse than murder. But it could be that suicide is worse than murder, because with murder, we assume you did repentance afterwards. Suicide, if you, if you were successful, there was no opportunity to do tshuva. So as far as I know, a murderer does get buried, in this regular cemetery. As far as I know, I, well, there's a third category. I, I think this is a very rare category. If a person, although today it grows a little bit, if a male refused to get a circumcision, 
because his parents didn't give it to him, and when he was older, he deliberately refused to get a bris milah, that would be a grounds. Because again, that's considered a betrayal, just saying. Huh? Uh, yeah, but there we usually say that once there's a death, the, de- the death takes off the excommunication. In other words, we, put a, we, we symbolically stone the grave. We put the stone on the grave, but, but the death takes off the excommunication. Yeah, I'm sorry, yeah. Um, does, at the time of death, does the person have to be intermarried, or, or let's say they got divorced or something? Oh, yeah, no, no. He would, he would, only if he was intermarried at the time of his death. Yeah, if he was divorced. That, that's fine. That, that's what okay. if they didn't yeah. know that they were Jewish? And they never found out, or they found, or they they found, found out? But... Well, I, I, hear, I hear your point, but I think, you know, once that, you know, once you know... I, I, listen, it's, I, no, that's what you're saying, no, about, like, lack of education. Yeah. Okay, so that would tie into that question. Right. But, 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 but assuming that uh, he knows that intermarriage is a very, very bad thing, the fact that he got married without knowing it uh, wouldn't wouldn't be in wouldn't immunize him from the consequence. Yeah. Is it less of a betrayal if a Jewish woman marries a non-Jewish man because she's still going to have Jewish kids? It doesn't really affect. Interesting question. Uh, the question that was raised is because Judaism passes through the mother, so maybe a Jewish woman who marries a non-Jew isn't as bad because they're going to have Jewish kids as opposed to a Jewish man who marries a non-Jewish woman where the kids are not going to be Jewish. You know, that is an excellent point. On the other hand, some have said you could argue the opposite way, and that is, if I'm going to bring Jewish kids into the world who are going to be raised uh, in intermarriage... But they're going to be Jewish no matter what. They'll be Jewish, but... Is you're that raising. what we're worried about? Though? Yeah, 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 yeah. I hear what you're saying, but, but I think uh, in terms of halacha, we, we actually don't, okay. don't make the difference there. Okay? okay? Uh, so... Again, these are, these are very, very hard questions. And of course, uh, let me mention that today, uh, intermarriage is only one of all sorts of marriages that are problematical. You have gay marriages, no, <laughs> you have all sorts of other issues that uh, c- continue to make things very, very uh, complicated. Uh, but we'll, we'll come back to some of them. But I, I want to get back to the, uh, to the Aguna uh, issue here. So we were talking about annulments. Uh, so now, right, so, so essentially, we, we've covered the following grounds. We've covered four topics that can help agunotes. Number one, we talked about the based-in process. Number two, we talked about invalidating the ceremony because of uh, bad witnesses and the like. Number three, we talked about annulments. That's mekach ta'us. And number four, which I didn't mention today, but you'll remember the problem of the incapacitated husband who was in a coma, where the Basin of Tzfat made themselves the shaluchim, the agents of the husband on the grounds that that's what he would have wanted, and they gave the get on his behalf, even though he was incompetent, but that only works for someone that is incapacitated. That doesn't work for a husband who says, I don't want to give. We can't be his shaliach if he says, I don't want. We can be his shaliach, possibly, if he's unconscious, and we assume he would want. Okay? So those are different ways agunot can be, uh, can be, can try to get either a get or an annulment in some cases. 
Now I want to mention, and there are other ways as well, uh, I don't want to go into all of them because we could spend a year <laughs> on all of these issues, but I want to mention something that's very, very common today in America, not so much in Israel, uh, and that is the prenuptial agreements that people sign. Uh, prenuptial just means before marriage, prenuptial, and uh, they often call it prenup. And there are a lot of different types of prenups. Let me say at the outset, just so you'll know the lay of the land, that prenups are widely used in what is called the modern Orthodox community, the young Israel community, etc. They are almost never used in the Hasidic communities or even the yeshiva type communities. Now, that doesn't mean they can't be used. In fact, I, I will say that they can be used, but, but, I'm, but I'm just telling you ahead of time that in some communities they are quite often used and some communities keep away from them. I'll discuss why uh, as, we, as we get through it. Uh, now, there are a number of types of prenuptial agreements out there, but if you're getting married in America, the most common prenup that you will encounter is the prenuptial agreement prepared by the Rabbinical Council of America. Rabbinical Council of America is abbreviated RCA. So it's called the RCA prenup. And you can download a free copy. Just Google RCA prenup and you know, you'll get uh, a, copy, a copy of it. Uh, and the RCA pushes it a lot. There are, actually, I, I myself am a member of the RCA, although uh, I do it primarily for uh, insurance. Uh, the RCA has 900 rabbi members ranging from very modern to more Haredi, etc. So they have different types of, of rabbis. But the RCA as an organization does push the prenup, although there are individual members who will not use the prenup. Right? So, so the RCA as an organization does not always reflect all of its members. Okay, so I want to describe what the RCA prenup is, and then I want to discuss should you have it, should you not have it, and what are the halachic problems with it? The RCA prenup actually has th is three different agreements. There are three different parts of the RCA prenup. Theoretically, there's a, I'll call it part A, part B, part C. Theoretically, these parts are separate, meaning you could sign the prenup part A without B and C, you can do B without A and C. You can do C without A or B. There's the three parts are mamash, three separate things. Uh, the RCA wants you to sign all of them. When I say you, I mean husband and wife, you know, chassan and kala. Uh, but they are separate agreements. Okay, part A simply says the following. Part A is the least controversial. What did you say it stands for? RCA, Rabbinical Council of America. RCA. They're stationed in Manhattan. By the way, they have an excellent basin if you, if you wind up living in New York. It's a non-Hasidic basin. Uh, it is called the Beth Din. That's how they spell it. B-E-T-H. Beth Din of America. It's a very, very good uh, basin. Um, they have a website. You can check, check out uh, the things that they, that they do. Uh, but the prenup has a part A, part B, part C. Okay? So um, what is part A? Part A simply says the following. In the event that we, husband and wife, 
cannot get along and have marital discord, we hereby agree to submit our dispute to a designated basin and abide by their rulings. Now, the RCA wants you to put in their basin. We hereby agree to submit to Beth Din of America. But you don't have to put in that basin. Uh, but you designate some basin. It could be the basin of Crown Heights. It could be a basin in Israel, whatever, whatever you want to do. Uh, but the concept is you agree ahead of time because you would ask before, how do you choose the basin? So the ICA agreement wants the parties to think about this ahead of time and they will agree to go to a designated basin. Okay, that's part A. That's all part A says. Now, why is part A important? The reason part A is important is the following. In legal analysis, not halakhic analysis, when people agree to go to a certain basin, that is called an arbitration clause. We have agreed to submit our disputes to something other than a secular court, to an arbitration panel. And that is legally enforceable. So if the husband refuses to go to a, that basin when they get, want to get a divorce, or the wife refuses, the other party can go to a secular court and force the person to go to the basin. So that's very useful because that essentially forces the person to go to Baston. Otherwise, if you don't have that arbitration clause, religiously I have to go to Baston, but who's going to force me if I don't? Right? So part A of the RCA is a mechanism that will allow the legal compulsion to make a person go to the Baston that they're supposed to go. So that's important. And Part A has no halachic problem whatsoever. Part A, nobody in the world could question Part A. That's simply agreeing to go to Baston, and the truth is I have to go to Baston even if I didn't agree. But it would have been a religious thing. Now it becomes something that could force me uh, by, by legal sanctions. Yeah? Can Uh, they can, like, like all contracts, they can be changed by mutual agreement. So if both parties want to change it, they can change it. But if one party wants to change it, they cannot because a prenuptial agreement is a legal contract, like any contract. If I sign a contract with you, I cannot change it, but we can change it. Right? That's how, that's how contracts uh, work. Okay. So part A is not the big problem. Part A is simple and, and straight. Part B is the biggie that raises a lot of problems. Uh, here's what part B says. Part B says, husband agrees that if he and his wife are not living under the same roof, in other words, we are separated, legally separated, husband will pay his wife a sum of money for her support, that means food, shelter, lodging, clothing, equal to, and then they have to pick, they have to pick an amount, they have to pick an amount based on cost of living. Based on, let's say, cost of living by the Department of Labor, you know, adjusted six months. In other words, the federal government keeps uh, statistics 
as to how much is an average cost of living for every part of the United States. Right? Obviously, living in Manhattan is a lot more expensive than living in Fargo, North Dakota. Actually, it's an amazing thing. I, I met, I remember I met a from guy, a Hasidish guy. And, you know, he looked like he was from Williamsburg. I said, where does he live? He says, he lives in Fargo, North Dakota. I, I met him. I said, what do you do? Because apparently, you know, it's so cheap there that, you know, even, even if like the only, like the only chassid for, for, for 2,000 miles, <laughs> but whatever it is, if he didn't have money, that's the place to go. Right? Fargo, North Dakota. No, I mean, it's, uh, <laughs> North Dakota is, okay, take care. Maybe, uh, maybe it was South Dakota, I don't remember, maybe, <laughs> like, you know, you know, you know the difference? <laughs> you know the difference. Uh, South Dakota is pretty, okay. North Dakota is too cold? Okay, <laughs> I accept that. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so there are, you know, there are little isolated pockets of, of religious Jews in some of these crazy places. Because the cost of living is very cheap. So, so listen to what Park B says. So Park B says, so let's, I'm going to pick a number. So let's imagine to live in Manhattan in, as a middle class person, you need, I don't know, I'm probably wrong with this, you need $1,500 a month. It's probably not, it's probably not enough. Okay, yeah, yeah. You, need, you need, okay. So, so the agreement says, the agreement basically says, for every day that we are separated, you know, you prorate the, the monthly, I will pay, you know, per day, you know, one-thirtieth of that monthly cost, such obligation to be terminated only when I give a Jewish divorce. Now, you see what the purpose of Part B is. Part B basically tells the husband it creates an indirect pressure on the husband to give a get to his wife by telling the husband, we're not forcing you to give a get. You can decide to give a get or not give a get. But you're signing a contract that for every day you don't give a get, you will owe your wife a certain sum of money. So it's within your ability to either pay that money, and she could sue you because it's a legal contract, or give a get. So part B puts indirect pressure on a husband to give a get by basically saying his support obligation is quantified at a certain dollar amount, and that will terminate only when he gives a get. So if he takes 30 days till he gives a get, then he will still owe her 30 days of that support. If he gives the get after 20 days, he only owes her 20 days of that support. If he gives the get after 10 days, he only owes 10 days of that support. If he gives the get after one day of separation, he only owes one day. So this creates a mechanism. You understand the idea? This creates a mechanism that the husband signs, which encourages, it doesn't force, it encourages the giving of the get as quickly as possible because our assumption is, unless the husband is really malicious, he would rather give the get than have these financial penalties keep on growing and growing and growing and growing. If he keeps her in a state of aguna for a year, 
he will, unless he's paying as he's going, he will owe her whatever that amount is. If it's $5,000 a month, he will owe her $60,000, right? So the concept would be give the get sooner rather than later because that will terminate your financial liability. Uh, yeah? Um, if it's an amicable divorce, as much yes. as I believe, yes. um, and she's sensitive, let's say she's better off financially on independently than he is, and she moves out, and they're, you know, they're communicating about the get, but they haven't gotten it, and like, yeah. let's say they have this prenup sign, um, you know, she was not wealthy before, but now she is, so she moves out, and for a month, they don't have a get, but she's okay with that, like, they're, they're Yes. So out. yes. And she's sensitive that like her child also lives with the father. She yes. Doesn't have the money. Yes. Can she like. That's correct. Her, right? So 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 that's that's a good point and that's very important. At any point, the party who is owed the money mm-hmm. can waive the money that is owed. So for example, let's say he took a month to give her a gift. Theoretically, he owes her thirty days mm-hmm. of let's say five thousand dollars, but you know. 30 days is not, a big, is not a big amount of time. So she could say, for example, hey, listen, just forget about the 30, uh, forget about the money, give me the get. So she does have the power to waive this. In fact, I, I, th- I, th- I think I misstated. In terms of 30 days, I think the whole, penal- the whole penalty doesn't start till after 30 days. Meaning to say, if the husband does not give a get within 30 days of her demands, he will then have to pay her that amount of money. But even after the 30 days, if she is willing to say, I don't need it, she, she can do that. Uh, but do you understand how Part B works? So Part B is designed by an agreement, by creating a contract, it puts pressure on the husband to give a get as soon as his wife demands it. She has to demand it in writing because if he doesn't give the get within 30 days of her demand, if he does within 30 days, he's not obligated, then he will have to pay this support obligation, and that will keep on growing and growing and growing until such time as he gives a get. And only when he gives a get does it stop growing, but the get does not erase the past due balance. And this is an enforceable legal contract, because it is a contract, it's written in English, uh, that she could go to court and, and enforce. Yeah? Why would he sign on to this? Like, it okay. doesn't make any sense why he would do that. Because if he doesn't sign on, then he won't have to pay, and he's not obligated. Yeah, that's to correct. Well, well, okay, first of all, let me, let, me, let me point out that, number one, uh, when people sign prenuptial agreements, they're in love, right? They're, they're in love. They, they're not anticipating. This is before, right before they get married. In fact, the RCA wants people to sign this at the marriage when they sign the ketubah. They want them to sign this agreement at the marriage ceremony itself. In other words, when they sign the ketubah. And when people are in love, right, the day you're getting married, you're not thinking that you're going to get divorced. I hope not. Uh, so... Uh, the husband's attitude is, this will never happen in a million years, and I love you so much that I'm willing to say that you know, if I don't give you a get, I'll pay you this amount of money. So things like this only but, work if at the time of marriage he was like a normal person. That's correct. Yeah, now again, 
the, the groom does not have to sign this. Of course he doesn't. This is a contract. But the assumption is that, that uh, you know, the groom is in, a, is in a good mood at that particular time. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Does the RCA hold on to a copy of this? Yes, they do. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, in other words, there are three, uh, you know, uh, the, you know the, the groom keeps a copy, the bride keeps a copy, and the RCA has a copy, etc. Right, so that's part B. Part C. Wait, what if it's the opposite? What if the husband is demanding the guy in the Okay, so, so that's a good point. Let, let me just mention that although it's rare, there's also an opposite scenario. If it is the woman that refuses to accept the get, and the man has made a demand when they're no longer living together, then she has to pay him a sum of money as well. So, so it works both ways, meaning to say, if he refuses after her demand, uh, he pays her, if she refuses after his demand, 30 days, then she pays him. So it, it does create a, a symmetry. Huh? Part C, you said? No, 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 that's still part B. It's part B. I didn't, oh. I didn't say part C yet. So there's a, the clause, the second clause. Has, has, has both parts. Yeah, yeah, right, that's correct. And if she, if, if they have been separated. Yeah. And he is, he wasn't giving her a get. For 15 days after yeah. he started owing. After the 30 days, yeah. Mm -hmm. And then he says, now I want to give you a get, and now she says, well, now I don't want a get. <laughs> Does that terminate his legal, like, how is this? Well, it, it, it terminates any future liability he has, and now she owes him money, but he still owes her, so you'd have to offset them. It would be like, he owes her, she owes him, and you have to add together the, the two numbers. Okay, that's part B, part B. Now, part C is not about this issue at all, uh, because keep in mind, in a divorce, in a Jewish divorce, there are many other issues besides get. In fact, often a get is uncontested. A woman wants to get, a man wants to get, they give a get. But there are going to be a lot of issues. Child custody, visitation, division of property, like a house and all those things. Now here, let me point out that according to halacha, you're supposed to go to a basin for that. People think you just go to a secular court. Basin is supposed to decide visitation. Again, I'll, I'll be the first to tell you that even many religious couples don't follow this, but they're incorrect. Uh, basin is supposed to adjudicate custody, visitation, and property division. So part C is, now this is optional, they don't have to sign this, but that's authorizing the basin to also decide custody, visitation, and property. And then it gives the party an interesting choice. That when we as a basin decide your property, do you want us to follow Torah law? Or do you want us to follow the secular law under the principle, there's a principle in halacha, dina de malchusadina. Dina malchusadina means that in monetary matters, the secular law can also be the halacha. Now that's a very interesting point because if you remember our discussion of the ksuva, uh, under the ksuva, property that is not jointly owned generally stays the husband's. If the, if the house is in the husband's name, the husband keeps the house. Under secular law, most things are divided. So most times it's in a woman's best interest 
<laughs> to have secular law adjudication, but it still should go through the Beistin. So the Beistin gives the parties the choice, of course they both have to agree, whether the decision should be based on secular law or the decision should be based on halacha. So again, part C has two parts. The first part is the Beistin is being authorized to decide uh, child custody, visitation, and property division. That's the first part of it. The second part of it is the parties have to choose in deciding property division, should the Beistin apply halachic rules or should the Beistin apply what is called equitable distribution, which is the uh, secular law for the division of property. That's part C. Now part C, you understand, has nothing to do with get, nothing to do with aguna. Uh, part C could be, even if they gave a get, whatever it is, get is not the issue. The issue is these other matters. Now, I do want to repeat again. I know I said it, I'll repeat it again. According to halacha, a married couple is obligated to go to a basin for all property and child-related matters. That is the halacha. It is common that people do not, but that is absolutely incorrect. Uh, yeah. I would imagine that a lot of people go to a secular court, at least in addition, because they want to have um, a ruling that will be enforced by law. Meaning, if you are if if you are not giving me my child on my weekends, I want to be able to call the police. No, that's correct. No, no. no. So here, let, let me differentiate. Meaning to say, what the parties can do is the parties can come to an agreement. Mm-hmm and then have it confirmed by the court, which can then be enforced, that's okay. Or they can get the decision of a basin and have it confirmed by a court. Meaning to say, the court should, cannot be the body that decides. Meaning it's okay to have the court confirm an agreement or confirm a psaac of basin and then enforce it. You can go to court to get it enforced. You can call the police. You are correct. But it should not be a secular judge who decides the case. Do you see the difference here? In other words, what typically would happen is, in a religious couple, if they're following halacha, the basin decides, and then they take it to court to have it approved, and then it becomes a secular judgment that can be enforced by calling the police. But it should not be the secular judge that decides the custody arrangement. First of all, you understand, a lot of things that are very important halakhically a secular judge does not pay attention to. For example, let's imagine one parent has stopped keeping mitzvahs. They have a five-year-old child, and uh, they're, they're Orthodox, and the kid was raised Orthodox, Shomer Shabbos, Shomer Kashras. And now one of the parents uh, openly eats treif and doesn't keep Shabbos, and not only that, but will give the child treif. Now, if we went to a basin, <laughs> the basin would basically say that the parent who doesn't keep the mitzvot cannot have any type of custody. They can only have maybe supervised visitation. If you went to a secular judge, secular judge doesn't care. Who, I mean, who cares? Uh, you know, if you keep kosher, you keep Shabbos, it makes no difference, right? So there are many, many things that are very important Jewishly that a secular judge doesn't care about at all. Right? So these matters do have to go to, uh, they do have to go to, uh, to a basin. Okay? 
Alrighty, so um, I do have one more thing to talk about, about uh, this next week. Uh, the very interesting New York get law. New York has two laws about gets, secular laws. And New York is the only state that has those laws because of so many from people, so many religious people in New York. We'll talk about that uh, next week. Oh, uh, well, final thing. Uh, should you sign the RCA, right? So I, as I described the RCA prenup, uh, should you sign it? Should your chassan sign it? Uh, is there any halachic problem with the RCA prenup? Okay, that we'll discuss next week as well. So have a good day. Yes, so the RCA prenup says she has to pay her husband money under, under the prenuptial agreement.